Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. And McCullum on 298. Leans over his back. Zah here. And he comes. Bowls. McCullum cuts. <laughs> We hear from Brendan McCullum in the wake of his history-making triple century. We talked to the man who had the best view in the house when McCullum brought up his milestone, Jimmy Neesham, who became the 10th New Zealand batsman to score a century on his test debut. And Martin Crowe talks about the weight lifted from his shoulders due to McCullum's success. We preview the Super Rugby season. We head to the Sochi Winter Olympics and talk to freestyle skier Jossie Wells, New Zealand's most successful Winter Olympian since Annalise Koberger in 1992. We hear more on New Zealand winning the rights to host the 2017 Rugby League World Cup. And Hamish Bond continues to burst Mahi Drysdale's bubble on the single skull seam. And we also have... They might be stopping it. That might be all, ladies and gentlemen. I don't have a mark on my face. Yes. And I upset Sonny Nisbet. And I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. The clubs won by Muhammad Ali when he beat Sonny Liston to win his first heavyweight crown. They'll be auctioned this weekend. We head to New York to hear just how much they're worth. The second test between New Zealand and India may have ended in a draw, but it'll go down in New Zealand cricket history for numerous milestones. The most notable of those was, of course, Brendan McCullum's 302 as he became the first New Zealander to score a triple century. But the Black Caps also posted their highest ever test total in the match, with 680 for eight declared. McCullum and BJ Watling, who scored 124, also set a record for the highest sixth wicket stand in test cricket with their 352-run partnership. While all-rounder Jimmy Neesham became the 10th New Zealander to score a century on debut. The test also marked the first series win over India in more than 10 years for the Black Caps and it comes on the back of a series win over the West Indies before Christmas. After the match, McCullum talked about his feelings as he walked onto the ground, knowing he was on the verge of history, when he resumed on the final day at 281. I wasn't too bad until I saw the size of the crowd, and then after every ball that I defended left or got a single, um, they'd start cheering, and that made me a little bit more nervous, to be honest. Sort of probably then understood the, the magnitude of what... Uh, what the task at hand was and, um, and how much, I guess, joy it gives um, fans of, of this cricket team um, to see guys succeed and, and to see records broken. And, um, you know, it was the moment that 300 came up and, and the, uh, the applause, which was ongoing for quite a while, um, it really hit home to me, I guess, that, uh, that it was such a significant achievement for, for a New Zealander and um, something that I'll, I'll certainly uh, remember for the rest of my life. I guess... All the times that you go through tough times and, and tough periods and um, you know, you're out of form at times and uh, you just try and I guess, keep, keep the faith in, in what you're trying to achieve. Um, and you know that there's, there's plenty of good people out there who are prepared to back you as well. And um, at that moment, I guess, I, I realised how much satisfaction you can bring to people from the way 
the way that you can achieve stuff and, and that that certainly gave me a lot of uh, yeah a lot of good feelings. He says the magnitude of his achievement caught him off guard. Without being disrespectful, I probably didn't know the magnitude of it until um, the last 24 hours. I think it's sort of um, you know I've grew up and I watched New Zealand cricket team for years on end, and I saw Martin Crow score as 299, and, and I thought it would have been amazing if he had scored 300. But I probably didn't quite understand how much it meant to to the whole country um, who support this team and. Uh, you know the media and, and the uh, support, which which started to to, uh, to gain momentum last night and this morning as well. Everyone willing in New Zealand to uh, to, to finally break that 300 barrier, and Martin as well. Um, you know his his thoughts on it too. I, I saw him this morning on the on the breakfast show, um, and he was discussing uh, how significant it would be. And yes, that was one of the things which sort of I guess made me realise how, how big a moment it was and spoke to Stephen Fleming last night and he sort of said the same thing and and those are the two guys who obviously sat at, at one and two on the on the table so I feel a little bit embarrassed because I'm not anywhere near the calibre of players that those those two in particular are um, but I think in terms of New Zealand cricket and and uh, and moving forward for, for this team we've finally broken that barrier of 300 and hopefully um, some of these other guys will uh, in years to come will get will, uh, will continue to break that barrier. Brendan McCullum puts his success down to a change in batting approach. But leading into the Test series, I sort of worked worked pretty hard. Um, well, worked pretty hard through my whole career, sneakily. Um, but leading into this summer, I sort of put a lot of emphasis in my Test game on defence and and trying to ensure that I'm trying to defend straight and make sure I'm, I know where my off stump is. And if I, can, if I know that I can trust that, then then the shots. Uh, that you do play become a lot more effective than trying to, uh, I guess, go to attack as your first form of defence because you're not you don't trust that. So, that was some of the tr- changes I've tried to make. Um, doesn't always work as we saw in the first innings here. Still play the odd rash shot. I just I guess found a way in the last couple of tests to be able to manage it. But um, but this time I'm going to get out playing playing shots which don't look great. First innings probably a case in point. Um, you know that's. Uh, even though I batted a long period of time for these runs, um, you still got to score runs as well, so you've got to play shots to do so. And, uh, work incredibly hard on, on drilling those shots and being confident at being able to pull them off. I think the, the big change that I've probably made is that I'll be picking the right shots for the right balls now versus um, because I trust my defence rather than uh, having to attack because you didn't have any, any sort of uh, confidence in your defensive game. Batting with McCullum when he brought up his triple century was debutant Jimmy Neesham. It was sort of a bit surreal almost, having Baz at the other end approaching such a momentous milestone. It, it almost took the focus off me, especially from the crowd's point of view, but also from my point of view. Um, the main objective was really just getting him through to 300, and then I sort of looked up and realised I was not too far away myself, so then it sort of all carried on from there. And especially after so long, like 120-odd overs or something with the, with the pads on, I presume. I said to Baz when I got out there, I'd spent longer with the pads on watching them bat than I had batting this season. So um, it was good to get off the mark, obviously, I think second or third ball, and, and obviously to carry on after that and, and keep going with Baz in what was still a reasonably precarious position for us at the time was very pleasing. It sort of ended up quite well in that I was almost the entree to the main course for, yeah. the, for the crowd to warm up and, and have a little practice session standing up and clapping, and then just to sit down and I think next ball or a couple of balls later for Bears to bring up his 300 was a special feeling. How much of a sense did you get that the crowd was 
riding each ball out there? Oh, massive sense. I think Baz might have played and missed it one and then blocked one next ball and it was the biggest applause for the morning. So to be uh, in that sort of situation where all the focus is completely not on you obviously helped um, in my own way of handling the pressure of coming towards 100, just focusing on what he was doing and and obviously um, worked out well in the end. Is it what you dreamed of? You must have spent a lot of time playing your first test over in your head. Absolutely. It's, it's 100 on test debut is something I've probably thought about more than any other thing in life up to this point so I sort of sat down in the corner getting back in the change room afterwards and it sort of started to sink in a little bit and it's obviously an amazing feeling and to, to literally witness history in front of your eyes during your innings is, on debut is something that will live with me forever. I suppose you're always going to be a bit of a quiz question now aren't you? who was at the other end when Brendan McCullum brought up his 300? Yeah, I might finally get one of those quiz questions right. <laughs> um, yeah, obviously, massive, massive moment, and and Baz has had a lot to do with my career over the last couple of years at Otago, and and then starting off in the New Zealand team. So to be able to share that with him was amazing. Now, one person particularly happy to see McCullum break the 300 run mark was the former New Zealand captain Martin Crowe. Crow held the record for the highest score by a New Zealander in Test cricket, having scored 299 against Sri Lanka at the Basin Reserve 23 years ago. But as he told Checkpoint's Mary Wilson, the score was something of a curse. It's been weird 23 years of, of carrying a bit of a burden, which I didn't handle very well, to be honest. Um, what I, do you mean? Well, I was pretty angry with myself. I, I, that's the way I operated. I tended to beat myself up a lot over silly things, and there I was worried about the run I didn't get rather than the 299 I did. And it just became a bit of a stone in my shoe and a, and a, um, a regret. Uh, and that was just, uh, I think, uh, amongst many other things that led me to being a little bit ill um, a few years ago. But anyway, last year I, I managed to um, learn how to let it all go. And I think today was kind of uh, just another uh, moment where I was able to um, let it all go and, and joyed, uh, overjoyed for Brendan to, to be able to get New Zealand on the map with a triple century for the first time. So um, so selfish. something of a relief. It's, it's, it's a lot of relief. Um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, a bit selfish, I know, but I, I'm just I'm delighted for Brendan because, he, you know, he's deserved He's been through some tough times as well, and, and uh, sometimes those tough times can shape you. And I think for Brendan, you know, he really uh, has transformed him, his game into um, something incredibly special, superhuman almost, really, on a cricketing term. And... and Boy, you know, what a fortnight he's had. A double century at Eden Park, a test win, and now this, and a series win, and, and all as the captain. So great leadership from him. And grinding that out, how much do you reckon it hurts? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, he'll feel sore for a few weeks, I would imagine. Um, but he'll be, um, he'll be able to relieve the pain just by the mere fact that he's done something probably he, he probably didn't even dream himself Uh but he's a very resilient character. He, he wants New Zealand to do well, and, and he knows that leading from the front is the best way to do that. What so, would the uh, pressure yeah. be like, Martin? I'm sorry? What would the pressure be like when you're out there doing that? Oh, the pressure's, you know, I mean, I think what, what you do is you say, we're in a big, big deep hole here, and therefore I, I've really just got to, you know, keep it really simple. Um, otherwise, you just wouldn't get through it. So he just built with BJ Watling, um, you know, a really simple plan from what I could see from afar, and that was just to really take it over by over, hour by hour, and then they just um, they slowly wore down the Indian bowlers under the hot sun on a good wicket. And, you know, it went from a very good performance to an incredible performance from both of them. And then, of course, you know, once BJ Watling left, Nisham came in and gave Brendan McCullum that chance to continue to bat 
without really um, feeling the pressure. Um, sounds difficult, I know, but I think he really just got into a hell of a zone. Um, he removed the emotion, I think, from his game, which we sometimes see, and that can trip you up. But he removed it. He stayed pretty grim-faced. He just stayed in the now, and I think that's the secret. But out almost immediately after. Yeah, well, you know, that's the emotion probably kicking in for the first time. Um, I didn't see it. I, I, I wasn't watching. I was actually busy. But um, I will catch up with it. But I'm sure there was some emotion when he reached 300. And, of course, as soon as you feel um, that focus go, that's when, of course, you get out because it only takes one ball. So apparently he got out, what, two balls later. And your past sing, saying to yourself, that should have been me. Um, oh, I had the opportunity, yeah, and um, I was uh, I was in that situation um, 23 years ago, uh, Mary, and I um, I had four balls left to get one run, and I looked around the the basin reserve. Everyone was getting excited and running through the the gates to to catch the the, the final run, and I I thought, gee, I'm going to be the first to do it. I got completely out of the moment, um, and I didn't see the ball coming, and and I paid the penalty for um, for not concentrating. So. Um, you know, and then we come back to what I first started with um, in this chat, which was what I started to then slowly beat myself up over missing that one opportunity. But um, it's over today, and it's uh, been passed on to a better man. That's former New Zealand cricket captain Martin Crowe talking to Mary Wilson. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. The new Super Rugby season kicks off for the New Zealand teams tonight with the two-time defending champions, the Chiefs, in Christchurch to play the Crusaders. Most seasons, the New Zealand sides can be expected to dominate the competition. However, as our rugby reporter Barry Guy suggests, that may not be the case this year. Expectations are always high for the New Zealand sides, but at first glance it doesn't appear that there'll be much change from the way the sides performed last year. Starting at the bottom, the Highlanders under coach Jamie Joseph have finished 8th, 9th and 14th. And he's now lost Ma'anonu, Jose Aguirre, Colin Slade, Tamati Ellison... Tony Woodcock, Andrew Hoare and Jamie McIntosh. Expectations are opinions and perceptions of other people may not, not necessarily ours and side on. We've got high expectations of our, of our own group. You only have to look at the likes of Brad Thorne, Ben Smith, Aaron Smith. We've got some experienced guys here pretty proud and disappointed with last season's efforts and results. So with that in mind, they're here to, to prove a few things wrong and make sure that they can go out and perform the season. The Hurricanes have been stuck mid-table for a number of years, last making the playoffs in 2009. For coach Mark Hammett's sake, that needs to improve. Their all-black swinger Corey Jane admits their inconsistency has been frustrating. Jane says the players have to be accountable and make the right decisions, something they've taken from the All Blacks. You can see it in the All Blacks. Mental was a big part of the, the game, and you know, we need that in the Hurricanes. You know, in Super Rugby sometimes... Uh, guys that have been around for a while tend to look after other guys in different positions where now if you don't do your role you're in the review after the game, you're going to get pointed out. There's no hiding because the competition level is too high for other people to look after other people. You've just got to learn your role. So uh, everyone's done that. It's never been like this in the team before. While the Blues have a number of All Blacks returning and the high-profile arrival of Benji Marshall... Coach Sir John Kerwin says his hope for the year is to have a squad of 37 players that are all able to compete for starting positions. Kerwin doesn't want to rely on his All Blacks to have to play the entire campaign. He says success will come from internal competition. 
Although we suffered last year, guys like Angus Tavao and, and uh, you know Sam Prattley are seasoned veterans now, and I've got faith in those guys to step up. It also will, will help the All Blacks be motivated because those guys want to be playing every week. We need to create that, and I believe the team can do that. We'll find out against the Honiters, but it's their opportunity to step up, and, and if we can do that, then I think we'll be achieving our goals. The Crusaders remain the most successful franchise in Super Rugby history with seven titles. They've made the playoffs every year since 2002, but their last title was in 2008, and coach Todd Blackadder is yet to taste success. Crusaders and All Black skipper Richie McCaw says it's key that they start well and work their way into a playoff position. The times that we've, we've done well in that is that you, you've got to do the job, obviously, in the pre-season, give yourself a chance, but you've got to be... Uh, you know, hit your peak then, whereas I think in the last few years we've got there and sort of it's almost been a we've scraped in there, a relief to get there, and then uh, you've got nowhere else to go. So, um, you know, 18 weeks is it, or 16 weeks to, uh, to ensure we get another chance. Successful Chiefs coach Dave Rennie and his players have long talked about the culture within their camp and an understanding of their Maori history, which has played a part in that. Mana is a word often used in reference to their leaders. Three-quarter Tom Marshall has moved from the Crusaders to the Chiefs and says he's enjoying working with the coaching setup of Rennie and Wayne Smith. The coach is obviously um, very analytical. Um, the game plan's very astute. They spend a lot of time in front of the computer analysing the opposition and reviewing their games from the previous week, so that enables them to keep improving throughout the season. And the culture themselves, you know, all the boys... Um, they developed them themselves over the last two years. It's something that they've built, so they've all bought into, and it is quite quite cool culture to just walk into. So the Chiefs are the benchmark in New Zealand, and the Crusaders and Blues appear the most likely to challenge them. So tonight the Crusaders host the Chiefs in Christchurch. Tomorrow night the Blues are in Dunedin to play the Highlanders, and on Sunday morning the Hurricanes play the Sharks in Durban in South Africa. The Wanaka freestyle skier Jossie Wells has posted the best finish by a New Zealander at the Winter Olympics in more than 20 years. Wells finished fourth in the halfpipe at the Sochi Games, while his brother Bo James was sixth. Wells was in third place after his first run, but he was unable to improve on that in the second round and was overtaken for the bronze medal. Wells' performance is the best since skier Annelise Koberger's silver medal in the slalom at the 1992 Games in Albertville in France. Jossie Wells spoke to Alex Coogan-Reeves about his Sochi experience. I didn't have any expectations, just wanted to have fun and see the best I could, and I definitely did that. That first finals run I did was the best run that I've done in half-pipe before. Um, I haven't been riding a whole lot of half-pipe recently, so um, I was really happy to land that run. And, uh, you know, to, to just be one spot off the podium, it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a bummer, but um, I, definitely, I definitely skied uh, up to my abilities, and I was really happy with how it went. So I guess that's all you can ask for as long as you don't feel like you've let yourself down in any way? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was a lot more favoured for slope style. Um, and when it didn't work out so well in the uh, in the finals there, definitely want to come out and get some redemption. And um, I felt like I did that tonight. And I'm, uh, yeah, probably the most happy dude to get fourth at Olympic Games, you know? <laughs> Not having so much pressure in this event and just... Being able to go out and see what happened actually made you ski better, perhaps, than you did in the slope style? No, nah, yeah, that might have had a little little bit to play with it. Um, I mean, you know, I, I knew that I had tricks that, to get onto the podium in slope style, and I really, really wanted it. Um, but for half part tonight, I was just, you know, out there having fun with my bro. Um, and, you know, I've always skied my best when I'm just having a great time, and uh, that's what I did in that 
worked out all right for me. I guess in um, your particular disciplines of skiing, that's what, really what it is about, isn't it? It's more about having fun and just seeing what you can do. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, this is the first year that we've had the Olympic Games, uh, or our events in the Olympic Games. Um, and, you know, before that we've had you know, Q Tour and X Games and events like that. Um, but it's still really big within the ski community. I mean, they've been our pinnacle events for a long time. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's such a cool experience to come here to the Games and, and see what it's all about. Uh, and for a lot of athletes, you know, this, the Olympic Games is kind of the, the make or break um, of their thing, of their, their sport and, and their, their sporting kind of their world, you know. But for us skiers, you know, I'm, I'm going to be skiing Doing, doing this stuff, whether I'm at the Olympic Games or I'm at the X Games or if I'm just, you know, at home with my boys. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I came here not not expecting the Olympics to make me or break me. Um, I've had a great time here and I've been really fortunate to be able to represent my country and put the silver fern on and go and do my thing and have the, the whole support of the nation behind me, which is absolutely amazing. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you're coming forth and a little bit of a bummer not making it on the podium. Um, but tomorrow I'm still going to go skiing exactly how I was two weeks before I even arrived in Sochi. So, um, you know, I couldn't be happy with, with this whole experience that I've been fortunate enough to experience. With your sport as well, because there is, such, seem, or seems to be watching it at least, such a small margin for error, only one thing needs to go wrong in a run, that you can't really afford to put so much pressure and so much, um, I guess, make it make or break on one event. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at the history of the sport and um, and even over the Olympic Games so far, it's it, in, in uh, skiing and snowboarding, slope style and half pipe, it, it's never been the uh, the favourites that have won. You know, uh, good friend of mine tonight, Torin Yedewalati, was a favourite coming into the event and uh, was unable to land a run and qualify to make it through the finals. And it's kind of been been the way throughout the whole games for these events. You know, it's so it's so hit or miss. It's whoever is the best on the day depends on, you know, the conditions, who's better at riding in certain conditions and whoever can, can lay it down on the day. And, I mean, that's that's how competition is, you know. It's always who's the best on the day. But I think with these sports that are skill-based sports and there's so much on the line and it's so fine tuning with all these tricks and stuff that it, it, it plays a little bit more into effect than, say, you know, a 100-metre sprint or something like that. How do you think that the inclusion of these freestyle skiing events has gone at the Olympics? Yeah, I definitely think it's been a bit of fresh air um, for the Olympic Games. The, the buzz over here has been amazing, and a lot of guys have been really stoked on it. And there's a lot of grommets coming through that are crazy good, and I think this is a sport that New Zealand can excel in. I mean, we have all the facilities right there. We have that underdog mentality to get out there and show the world what we've got, and uh, I think that's just what it takes within, the, within, the, within this type of sport. Um, and I've seen a lot of talent. You know, in the Queenstown Lakes, Wanaka area where I live, I see a lot of lot of young kids just absolutely killing in the park on a daily basis. Um, so I think New Zealand's in for, uh, for a bit of a ride with these sports over the over the next few years and, and you know, into the future when I'm old and crusty. That's freestyle skier Jossie Wells talking to Alex Coogan-Reeves. New Zealand will host at least five matches at the 2017 Rugby League World Cup with the New Zealand Rugby League Chief Executive Phil Holden still holding out hope the final may yet be played in Auckland. New Zealand and Australia's joint proposal beat out a bid by South Africa to host the tournament. Phil Holden told Joe Porter all of the Kiwis' pool games will be played in New Zealand as well as at least two matches in the knockout phase. 
our pool will be in New Zealand, uh, plus a quarter final, a semi final. So if there are teams of four, potentially at least six games uh, are up, up there for us, uh, and we'll obviously look at the final. Uh, it'll be a commercial decision at the end of the day, but I'm sure that we can put up a competitive uh, proposition around that. I'm sure Australia would say the same thing about ANZ Stadium, perhaps. Yep, absolutely, and you know you have to be realist there that uh, the this, this simple economics uh, would indicate that you know a stadium like that would be in a far, far better place, and they've got every likelihood of filling it. Any indication at the stage where in New Zealand those matches would potentially be held? Would they all be in Auckland? Uh, no, um, they'll be moved around the country. Uh, we're very conscious that we're a national game, and we need to make sure that the reach is appropriate across the country. We've been clear on that with our discussions with central government because it's you know a key driver um, in terms of, for them in terms of any support that they may look to give us uh, in relation to the tournament. So um, that uh, um, you know that'll be the key driver there. We'll be moving it around. So any sort of regions you can tell me right now? No, no, it's still got to be worked through, Joe. It's um, still very early days. Three years out, and we've only just got the nod. Just personally, would you like to see it go to a small place like New Plymouth or Rotorua, or are we talking sort of Wellington, Christchurch, Dunedin? Um, you know, personally, I've got some views around, you know, some of the smaller regional suburbs, um, regions. You know, I think that there's, um, you know, places like Whangarei, places like Rotorua um, certainly appeal to me. Um, but again, you know, we need to work closely with the SPV around that. Do you, do you take into consideration anything to do with sort of the league heartlands of New Zealand, I guess? I think, we, you know, we need to be really cognizant of that. Um, and, um, uh, you know, so that would be certainly a factor to consider into it. Certainly when we, when we finally see what the, lot, what the make-up of our pool would potentially look like, then, we, then we'll, have, we'll know more. And potentially matches in Papua New Guinea and other parts of the Pacific, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So there'll be a pool based in far north Queensland. That was part of our proposal, um, of which a couple of games would be played in Port Moresby in uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, and then there was discussion um, during the actual presentation whether there might be an opportunity to play something in um, a, a fixture in uh, the South Pacific somewhere, either Fiji or Samoa. So again, that's all got to be worked through, but the Papua New Guinea one is locked in. And in terms of growing the game internationally, this has got to be a great step in the right direction. Yeah, and that, that was a key thrust of our presentation. Um, you know, the international great game took a grew an extra leg at the end of last year in the UK, um, and we were really keen. And it was a clear thrust of our presentation in terms of consolidating those games uh, for the benefit of international football. So, um, you know, it's all it's all good stuff, and it's all you know the momentum's there. And I think that hosting it in Australia and New Zealand means that you know those games can really be um, cemented. In terms of the benefits for New Zealand and New Zealand Rugby League or Rugby League in New Zealand when the tournament is held, could you just tell me what you think some of the, I guess, financial benefits would be as well as for the growth of the game and the, the health of the game? Well, clearly there'll be some massive legacy opportunities that will come out of hosting the World Cup. Um, so for our playing community, uh, our volunteers, uh, you know, I think there'll be some real growth in that area. Uh, facilities is a key a key thing. I think you know um, we're going to need to make sure that all of our facilities, this is at the community level, benefit from uh, hosting the World Cup and being able to host some of those teams and engage with them appropriately. Um, those will all be you know some of the top line things from a game perspective, 
economically, there's no doubt that um, the local economy will benefit significantly from having a World Cup. Uh, the GDP analysis that we've had done would indicate that that's uh, you know it's going to be it's going to be um, a big result from for the economy. So um, you know I think overall for New Zealand Inc, it's a it's a great result. The rugby league audience in New Zealand is is is, uh, is a pretty large one. I mean, there's no doubt that we benefit from the halo effect uh, through the NRL, so there's lots of interest in rugby league. Uh, we know through the research that we do that, um, you know, from a fan and fanatic perspective and a passion perspective, it's number two behind rugby. So the fan base is broad and wide. So uh, I think the Nines demonstrated that if you've got the right event and it's well supported and executed, people will come, and I'm absolutely crystal clear that we'll deliver on that for 2017. That's the New Zealand Rugby League Chief Executive Phil Holden talking to Joe Porter. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. It must be starting to bug Olympic rowing champion Mahi Drysdale by now. He's suffered three straight losses to Hamish Bond and there's chance Bond could win the single-skull national title, even when it's not his specialist event. Bond is usually paired up with Eric Murray, the duo having completely dominated the men's pair on the international stage over the past few years. But Bond, Murray and Drysdale will all line up in a single-skull final on Lake Karapiro near Hamilton this weekend. After an extended break following the London Games, Drysdale suffered a rib injury in a cycling training accident and he's yet to return to full fitness. Despite the recent success that he's been enjoying over Mahi Drysdale in the single-skull, Hamish Bond told me that he has no intention of moving into the single full-time. I'm confident that I can mix it with him and, and be be competitive, and and I think that's, that's the most important thing. You know, if you half the battle is just believing you can keep up. I mean, the, the guy is the five-time world champion and probably the best single scholar of all time, so um, half the battle of the, of the season, I guess, was just getting a bit of belief in my own ability that I can, I can actually mix it, mix it with him. Um, so I, I've, I think I've accomplished that. Um, I, I believe I can have a go, but um, yeah, still got to go and do it. And, and I'm under no illusion he's going to give me the title easily. Does it make you think though? What if? What, what if I decided to go for the, the single? I mean, only in the fact I, I mean, I would be interested, I guess, to know how I would match up internationally. But in saying that, it's a, it's a, it's a big world out there. I mean, the, the single is, as far as physiological terms, it's, um, it's probably the most challenging race. Uh, the guys that do it generally are the, are the best rowers of, um, or a lot of the times um, will be the best rowers in their, in their country, from their country, um, and they're very, very competitive, it's a very competitive class. Um, oh yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it could go, but it'll also be realistic and that it'll be a, another step up. And in saying that, I think Eric and I, Half of our, I mean, we are, we are very good physiologically. I mean, if you compare us in, with all the other rows internationally, I think we'd be, you know, we'd be right up there physiologically. But then we also have our our combination, you know, the way we work together and the way, I guess, the sum of our parts is slightly better than the than the parts themselves. Which um, I guess, if you're in the single, you've only got the parts themselves. So. You take that um, that extra little bit you can get out of having a good combination out of the equation. So um, I'm 
at this stage just looking forward to getting in the pier and having another good international season and given our form, although Eric's been close but not not um, not quite competing for the wins so far in the single, he's probably been a little bit disappointed with how he's gone um, and saying that uh, the times that Mahe and I, Eric, uh, Mahe and I have been doing a have been you know, quite quite quick. So given what you've achieved with Eric, it would seem there's not a lot else for you to actually be able to achieve. Does it th- make you think, I'll, I'll, I'll give the single a go? It really doesn't um, interest me hugely at this stage. I'm not saying it'll never happen, but as far as looking towards the next Olympics, it's not really on my to-do list. Um, you know, Mahe's proven that he's the strongest uh or can be the strongest single single scholar in the world, and um, I've, uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how he goes internationally this year. So I've, I don't really have any aspirations in the immediate future. As far as reinvigorating myself, this has probably been what uh, well, that's probably been a result of what's happened this summer. I think. Half of the reason for going in the single, probably the majority of the reason for going in the single was about doing something fresh, about um, you know, a challenge and finding something that motivates me. And it was a motivating challenge, I guess, to try and get up to speed and, and have a real crack at the single. So um, that that is, I guess, mostly mission accomplished, even if I don't get the result tomorrow. You know, I still um, had a great summer and put myself in great shape looking towards the international seasons. The rivalry must be intense, even if the three of you or don't don't acknowledge that. There must be a real inner sense that you want to have those bragging rights over Eric and over Mahe. I mean, if you were able to have take the national title over Mahe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it would be... It's, I think we're at the level, I guess, where you don't... I mean, there's not so much brag. It's not literally bragging rights. We both, everyone knows the situation. We all, we all want to win. Um, you don't need a. We don't need. There's nothing that you need to say, or the actions, or what happens on the water is is loud enough for anything. So, um, I think you know, Mahe said he's enjoyed the challenge over the over the summer. It's uh, he's. Um, smart enough to look at it from the point of view that if it, you know, it's great for him. No one else in the world is getting this sort of calibre of international of of racing at this time of the year. So he's looking at it as a positive and and a challenge, and it'll only lift his level. So um, and I'm I'm happy to to help out or you know to to provide that. But in saying that, you know, I haven't trained the whole summer to 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 get second. But um, yeah, if I if I row to the best of my abilities, I'm confident that I can um, certainly be challenging hard. Does I think it? I will think the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, I, I mean, given how easy you and Eric have dominated the pair, does it make you enjoy, I suppose, the fact that you're being pushed so much harder? I mean, what happens, for example, I mean, could could you and Mahe both compete in the single and at World Cup events? Um, I mean, you could potentially compete at World Cup events, but for World Champs, you can only have one representative from the country. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's an option. Um, but in saying that, you know, we it's, it's hard to 
you don't want to be chopping and changing too, too much between boats. Um, although, you know, the pier went really well with James today off limited run-up. You know, we, to get it really humming, um, we, we do need time in the boat. So um, you've got to have a fine balance between trying to do too much and playing too many games. And, and I think if you're, if you're doing that, you're losing sight. I guess you're perhaps not respecting the opposition in the pier enough and um, that's probably when you're going to come unstuck if you think you can get away with, um, you know, not preparing to your maximum capabilities. Then that's probably when you're uh, you're going to get tipped up when you don't expect it. I was talking to Olympic rowing champion Hamish Bond. They might be stopping it. That might be all, ladies and gentlemen. I don't have a mark on my face. Yes. And I'm set on enlistment. And I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. No. I am the king of the world. Hold it, hold it, I'm hold it. Hold it, you're not that pretty. I'm a bad man. The gloves worn by Muhammad Ali when he beat Sonny Liston to win his first heavyweight boxing title will go under the hammer this weekend, just days before the fight's 50th anniversary. The gloves, which are expected to fetch over half a million dollars, were used by the then-named Cassius Clay to launch a boxing career that made him a global sport icon. Clay fought a heavily favoured Liston at Miami Beach on February the 25th, 1964, stopping Liston, the reigning champion, in the seventh round. The gloves were cut from Ali by trainer Angelo Dundee, and Noah Fleischer of Heritage Auctions in New York told me that they're still in Dundee's possession until just a year and a half ago when they were initially sold. They are in very good state, actually, considering considering uh, what they were used for uh, and how old they are. They're made of... Uh, it's Sheepskin or lambskin, we're not quite sure, but they're 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 made of that. They're about 14 or 15 inches long, and they're about eight ounces, and they're filled with goat hair. And they're uh, they're in good good shape for that. And considering how many times he punched Liston and how hard he hit them, you might think they'd be in worse uh, worse shape than they are. But they they look really good. Angelo Dundee cut them off Ali, didn't he? He did indeed. Yes, sir. He cut the strings, uh, the tie on it. He did not cut the the, uh, the animal skin that they were made of. So beyond, um, in, if, if you didn't know that they were cut off, you'd never see any evidence of it. I imagine the, uh, the auction has generated quite an amount of international interest. Yes, sir, it has. We've had... Uh, We've had inquiries from uh, from potential bidders all over the world, and we've certainly had uh, had press just like uh, just like yourself um, from from countries. I don't think it gets much further away from where we are than New Zealand, and uh, it's uh, we've had inquiries from everybody all over. How do you go about valuing something like this? That's a very good question because it's it's all about the comparables and what things like it have sold, and there's really nothing that has sold like this. Um, these gloves sold originally when they first came out of Dundee's collection a year and a half ago for $358,000. So we'll use that as the baseline for what we think these should bring and uh, and go from there. And we'll look at other boxers. And But, you know, Ali is one of a kind and the greatest of all time. So it's, it's hard to, to definitively say what it could potentially be worth or what it'll bring. So, you know, we're, we think about... We think half a million, um, $500,000 is the estimate, and we think that's fair, and, and we'd expect it to, uh, you know, to flirt with that, if not break that. How many bidders are you anticipating? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think we have it on, our, on the website, um, ha.com, it actually lists how many people are bidding at the moment. I think we, we've had, 
We've had four or five people actually put in bids. Um, there'll be people that have already submitted bids. There'll be people that will bid online, live during the auction or on the phone. And we might have people in the room. So there's really no telling. And ultimately, as we say in the auction business, we're looking just for two people. You mentioned there about trying to draw a comparison between other items. Maybe what what are some of the other the big items of sporting note that that you've auctioned off? Well, some of the other ones that Heritage has sold that that might be comparable. You, you look at um, in, in this same auction we have Babe Ruth's 1923 World Series pocket watch um, that the Yankees gave him. That's you know that's probably a million dollar item. Last year, we sold the uh, the jersey that Michael Ruzioni, the captain of Team USA, uh, the hockey team in 1980 at the Olympics when they beat the Russians in the Miracle on Ice. We sold his jersey from that game for $670,000. As far as things that don't ex- that we that we haven't sold, you'd have to look at somebody like Jackie Robinson. Something special about him, something from his career that is comparable to the figure that that he is to the sporting world. That's what you'd have to look at. But Ali is really we deal so much with straight-up American sports, but Ali is, you know, he belongs to the world. So it's it's very difficult to say <laughs> how to really compare that. I don't know that there is a comparison for him, really. Have you had a hold of the gloves, have you? I have, yes, sir. I felt like I, I would not have wanted to feel what it was like to get punched. That's all I could think of because they're so thin and Ali hits so hard. And I just think about just that covering his fist. I don't know how Liston took the beating he did because Ollie, if he hit me with those gloves in his prime at half strength, I, you know, I'd, I'd be in the hospital for weeks. That's Noah Fleischer of Heritage Auctions in New York. He's talking about the sale of Muhammad Ali's gloves. Well, that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at sports at radioNZ.co.nz. On behalf of the Extra Time team, I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.